This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 111th episode of the program. Today is September 21st, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank each and every single one of our latest PayPal and Patreon contributors. And this week, we have quite a bit. So we have Al Kaniki, Anders Salveson, Andrew Meadows, Artist One, Chris Henriksen, Craig Kolstad, Daniel Hill, Daniel Laufer, Dan Plumer, Dante Rado, Dave Smith, David Waite, Designer Dave, Duh, Eileen Conway, Gopal Pokrell, Jeffrey Frankway, Jenny Wu, Jezza, Joshua Bryan, Judith Creasy, Karen Sheets, Chris Thomas, Kyler Avery, Linda Sharp, Mark Emkin, Marty P, Matthew Castro, Matthew Nyholt, Monica Ragney, Nicholas Braz, Nino Barros, Robert V. McCarthy, Skip Dottie, Steve Armstrong, and Sydney Bramavar. So thank you so much to each and every single one of these individuals. Some of you sent in donations with really kind notes, you know, congratulating me on the wedding and whatnot. And it, it just made my day. You guys are so kind. Um, and you help this show to not just thrive, uh, but survive as well. It's really important. So thank you all so much. If you'd like to join the independent progressive media revolution, you can visit humanistreport.com or go to Patreon forward slash humanistreport. So on today's show, of course, we're going to be talking about what I missed last week, which is Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So first of all, we'll talk about the surprising amount of momentum Bernie Sanders' bill already has, and we'll also talk about the attacks it received, which we predicted, uh, from Republicans, from health insurers, and also from the mainstream media, from the likes of Fox News, Chuck Todd, and of course, Joy Reid. So we'll talk about all of that, and additionally, on the topic of healthcare, well, of course, the GOP's Obamacare repeal and replacement plan is back again. So we're going to talk about that. And we'll also talk about the discussion that Bill Maher's panel recently had about Bernie Sanders. And we'll, of course, talk about Hillary Clinton's continued attacks on Bernie Sanders and his supporters and why it's really problematic and how it actually hurts the progressive movement. And finally, on this episode, we will talk about Ted Cruz and how he liked a porn tweet. And I really don't think I have to explain to you why I wanted to talk about this, because it's hilarious. <laughs> so we're not going to have an episode as long as the last episode, uh, because we only have to plan for one week's worth of content. But nonetheless, it's going to be a great discussion. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Last week, as you all know, Bernie Sanders finally unveiled his highly anticipated Medicare for All bill. And it actually immediately received quite a bit of support among Senate Democrats. Actually, 16 co-sponsors to be exact. So I'm going to let Bernie Sanders go ahead and explain who has decided to come on board with his Medicare for All plan. As of today, we now have 16 co-sponsors on this legislation. Uh, Pat Leahy, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, Tom Udall. Gene Shaheen, Jeff Merkley, Al Franken, Kirsten Gillibrand, 
Dick Blumenthal, Brian Schatz, Tammy Baldwin, Elizabeth Warren, Martin Heinrich, Maisie Hirona, uh, Senator Ed Markey, Cory Booker, and Senator Harris of California. And we also have dozens of grassroots organizations all across America who are going to help us pass this bill. Now, that to me is really encouraging. And it's honestly pretty surprising to me because I didn't initially expect probably more than five co-sponsors, but to see 16 Democrats lining up behind Bernie Sanders here, it really shows that as progressives, we really are making a difference. Now, of course, if you noticed that a lot of people who decided to back his bill are also eyeing the White House in 2020. Well, you're not alone. But regardless of their true intentions, support for this bill among corporate Democrats like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and Kirsten Gillibrand, it still demonstrates the level of influence that progressives actually have. Because even if centrist corporate Democrats are only supporting this bill in order to help improve their chances in 2020, well, I mean, this is still a tacit admission by them that they know how powerful progressives are. And to me, I feel as though that's a win in and of itself. So progressives are making progress. We're making our voices heard. And if you are one of the individuals that's been pushing for this bill, either via Twitter or Facebook, I mean, you have yourself to thank for moving the party in this direction. Now, we've still got a lot of work to go to do. And, you know, the fight is only beginning. But I still think this is really great. Now, regardless, I mean, I don't want to harp on corporate Democrats too much here because they're still doing the right thing. And even if I may not necessarily know whether or not they're doing this for altruistic reasons, there was one individual that really, you know, restored my faith in her, at least to some extent, and that is Elizabeth Warren, who spoke about this bill and gave a really passionate speech that was honestly really moving to me. It's an enormous honor to stand with each of you to say never again in America does anyone go bankrupt just because they got sick. Never. been a long fight from Franklin Roosevelt, who wanted health care for all as part of Social Security, to Lyndon Johnson, who gave us both Medicare and Medicaid, to Ted Kennedy, who made sure that our children were insured with CHIP, and to Barack Obama, who helped build the game changer that gave millions of Americans who didn't have health care coverage new health care coverage. We are here today to take another step. We will not back down in our protection of the Affordable Care Act. We will defend it at every turn. But we will go further and we will say that in this country, everyone, everyone gets a right to basic health care. That's what Medicare for All is all about and that's why we're here. Say thank you to Bernie for all that you have done. I am honored to be part of this fight. I am honored to have a chance to stand up and say one more time health care is a basic human right, and we fight for basic human rights. Thank you. Now, that video actually made me emotional, and it's not because, you know, I feel as though my love for uh, 
Elizabeth Warren is back again or anything like that. And yes, I know that I'm a sucker for sad music and a cleverly edited video that clearly tried to invoke an emotional response out of me, but I think that this video really put things into perspective, and I think Elizabeth Warren gave a great speech. This video really demonstrated to me that this is the moment in history that we'll always look back on where Bernie Sanders introduced the bill that would one day become law and make medical bankruptcies and deaths due to a lack of insurance a thing of the past. And when we read about this day in history books, which I believe we will one day, future generations are going to ask the question, what the hell took you guys so long? And all of us will be there to tell them how we fought, how you fought, for this bill relentlessly. But Elizabeth Warren wasn't the only show stealer here because Bernie Sanders brought out a Canadian doctor that made a really powerful speech that showed us exactly what we were missing by not having Medicare for all here in America. I must say I'm very grateful uh, that so many Americans are interested in learning about the experience of your Canadian neighbors under our single payer healthcare system, which we also call Medicare. As a practicing doctor, a hospital administrator, and a citizen, I am so proud to be part of a system where access to doctor and hospital services is truly based on need, not ability to pay. And I'm not the only one. In public polls, 94% of Canadians say that our healthcare system is a source of personal and collective pride, even more than ice hockey. <laughs> Single-payer health care is a symbol to us of what it truly means to be Canadian, that we take care of each other. Now, my grandparents immigrated to Canada in the early 1950s, like so many people who come to this country, hoping to build a better life for their kids. And at that time, there was no universal health coverage in Canada. So when my grandfather had his first heart attack in his early 40s, his world was shaken. And by the time he died nearly a decade later, the family was essentially bankrupted by medical bills. I know that this remains a reality for many in the United States today, but you should know that just north of your border, that kind of a situation is essentially unimaginable. My generation of Canadians does not remember what it was like to worry about paying a doctor or a hospital bill. And despite our challenges, which of course every country experiences, Canadians have a longer life expectancy, lower infant mortality rates, and fewer preventable deaths than in the United States. Single-payer healthcare is also, as you know, less expensive. In Canada, our administrative overhead is less than 2% in our public plans, as compared to 18% in the private plans here in the US. We spend just under $5,000 per capita in Canada, to, to cover everyone. You spend nearly $10,000 per capita, and yet tens of millions of people are uninsured. But most importantly, when my patients are sick, I do not need to ask if they have insurance or if they can afford to pay for my services. And throughout my pregnancy, and for the birth of my daughter in a world-class hospital, I was never asked for money, and I never received a bill. I just handed over this card, my Canadian healthcare card, to my doctor, and that was it. I wish that all of my American neighbors could experience the same simplicity in their moments of need. 
and I hope that the American people will seize this opportunity to declare to each other and to the rest of the world that you do believe access to health care is a human right. Thank you. So I think that her message was especially important because as humans, we're just we're hardwired to fear the unknown. But the thing about Medicare for all is that it's not unknown. I mean, single payer is not a new idea. It's actually something that exists in the world today. I mean, you could look to other countries, just our neighbor north of the border in Canada and see that single payer is something that all of their citizens love and they take pride in. So. You know, this was really important to hear from that outsider's perspective to let us know that we don't have to be worried about something that's unfamiliar to us because other people, just our neighbors, they have it and they love it. And yes, by moving towards a Medicare for All system, we are making the right decision. Now, when it comes to the 16 co-sponsors, getting back to them, yes, irrespective of their true intentions, what they're doing is the right thing, but there's still quite a bit of Democrats that are not supporting Bernie Sanders' bill. I mean, 16 is a lot and more than I expected, honestly, but we need 100% of Senate Democrats to be on board with this bill. So the first question that we have to ask is where the Democratic Party's leadership stands. And they've made it clear that they are against this, even though they don't want to tell us that they're explicitly against it. So Nancy Pelosi doesn't support single-payer because, quote, right now I'm protecting the Affordable Care Act. And Steny Hoyer, who is next in line to become the Democratic Party leader in the House, echoed the same sentiment by saying, The first objective that both Leader Pelosi and I have is to preserve the ACA and to adopt policies that will make it work better. That's our first priority. So according to Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But at least that's a somewhat coherent response, at least when juxtaposed with Chuck Schumer's response, because, I mean, he brushed off single-payer altogether, saying, quote, Democrats believe that healthcare is a right for all, and there are many different bills out there. Well, actually, it's not a right if you don't guarantee it. So you don't get to co-opt our rhetoric and then not walk the walk. If you're going to say that healthcare is a right, then treat it like a right and co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill. But Chuck Schumer won't do that. And furthermore, he talks about how there's many bills out there. He said this before, too. But he hasn't proposed a single alternative to single payer. And also his constituents are asking him to support single payer. So he needs to do that. And of course, if you're a rational thinker, then the arguments from Steny Hoyer, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, they make no sense. And if you want to know why they're saying the things that they're saying, even if they don't make sense, well, you just have to follow the money for an answer. So in fact, Andrew Perez is a journalist that did just that. And he reports that Democratic holdouts on Medicare for All have received twice as much insurance industry cash as sponsors. So when you look at the specific numbers, we see Gary Peters, Ron Wyden, who's my senator, Chuck Schumer, Mark Warner, Debbie Stabenow, Bob Casey, Patty Murray, Michael Bennett, Bill Nelson, and Dick Durbin, all receiving the most cash in comparison with their colleagues. And if you're wondering whether or not this really is just a cut and dry case of pay to play, it is, but we actually have an example that illustrates perfectly how money from the health insurance industry influences Democratic Party members' actions. So we'll take John Hickenlooper, for example. So he actually isn't a member of the Senate. He's currently the Democratic governor of Colorado. So 
He's someone who identifies as a so-called moderate that doesn't support single-payer, and now that he sees the momentum clearly shifting towards single-payer, he's not only doing what his donors paid him to do and fight against single-payer, but he's really going above and beyond. So according to David Sirota and Lydia O'Neill of the International Business Times, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, who is leading the push for an insurer-friendly alternative to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposal, has hired a Washington lobbying firm that represents represents insurers and other healthcare industry companies and groups opposed to single-payer healthcare. The firm was hired by Hickenlooper's government office to lobby on healthcare after it helped bankroll the Democratic governor's election campaign. So this example demonstrates just how important campaign contributions from the health insurance industry are to Democrats because it's not just like he is creating an obstacle to single-payer. He's taken it upon himself to stop momentum at the national level when it comes to single-payer because he thinks that, for whatever reason, if he loses those health insurance industry donations, that it would hurt his uh, electoral prospects when he runs for governor again or potentially runs for president. So this is the level of corruption that we're dealing with. But the thing about corruption is that we can combat it, and that's where you come in. So at this point, the fight's only beginning, and even though we already have 16 co-sponsors, we've got to do for this bill what we did for H.R. 676, which is the companion bill for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill in the House. So that's exactly what we're going to do. So since one of my senators, Ron Wyden, is not on board with Medicare for All, I'm going to call him and ask him exactly why he's choosing to not co-sponsor this bill that his constituents in Oregon clearly want him to back so i would encourage you to call your senator but uh ron wyden's number for those of us that live in oregon is 202-224-5244 hello this is oregon senator ron wyden and it is an honor to represent you in washington dc then why aren't you representing me for calling to make your voice heard this unique time in our history, it's crucial you let me know your concerns. I will. Now one of our staff will tell you how to leave a message. If you'd like to leave a message or comment on an issue, please press 1. If you'd like to hear office hours and location, please make sure to spell your first and last name and provide your organ zip code before leaving a message. You may also leave your full mailing address if you'd like. Hello, this message is for Senator Ron Wyden from one of his constituents. My name is Mike Figueredo, F-I-G-U-E-R-E-D-O, in zip code 97203. And I'm calling to ask Senator Wyden why he's not representing me as one of his constituents, because Bernie Sanders, as you all know, recently introduced his Medicare for All bill. It is S-1804. And for some reason, Ron Wyden hasn't co-sponsored this bill. So my question is, why haven't you done what Oregonians clearly want you to do? And my second question is whether or not the $148,000 had anything to do with your unwillingness to not support this bill. So I voted for you twice because sometimes you do some really progressive things. You've done also really 
problematic things. You voted to fast track the TPP, but I tried to look past that and voted for you anyway because, again, you've done great things in the past. But if you do not back this bill and co-sponsor this bill, I promise you, I will never vote for you ever again. You will not dupe me over again. I voted for you in 2010 and 2016, and that will be the last time if you don't get on board with this bill. So not only do you need to co-sponsor this, but you need to actually actively fight for it. Otherwise, you've lost my support forever because this is the ultimate litmus test. And again, if you don't get on board, you've lost one supporter forever. Co-sponsor this bill. Stop being a coward and do what's right. Ignore your health industry donors because they're not the ones that vote for you. We are, and I voted for you. Now you need to represent my interests because that's what you do in a democracy. We elect you to represent our interests. Now represent us. Sorry, I kind of got a little bit more angry at the end there, but <laughs> I kind of just go off sometimes. So again, you don't have to leave them a 10-minute message like I typically do, but I tend to, I start off relatively calm and then I get angry as you guys all see, but please call your senator, let him or her know that this is non-negotiable. If they don't get on board with Medicare for All, you're not going to be on board with their election campaign. And I want to kind of shine the spotlight on Sherrod Brown because he is a so-called progressive senator and he's nowhere to be found on this issue. So call your senator and if for whatever reason you have both of your senators on board, then call Sherrod Brown because he's someone who I think we can get on board if enough people call him. So, you know, that's what it comes down to. The fight is only beginning. We are hitting the ground running. But, you know, this is only the beginning. So um, pace yourself. In what might be the least surprising news ever, the health insurance industry has come out against Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, S1804. I know, shocking, right? Who would have thought that they would <laughs> vocalize their opposition to a bill that would potentially put them out of business? So according to The Hill, Rachel Rubin reports, the main insurer trade group issued a strongly worded statement against Medicare for All ahead of the release of Senator Bernie Sanders' single-payer health care plan. Whether it's called single-payer or Medicare for All, government-controlled health care cannot work. David Merritt, executive vice president of America's Health Insurance Plans, said in a statement Wednesday, it can't work, guys, because the health insurance industry said so. I wonder if they have anything to gain from saying that <laughs> so just so we're sure here david so when you say that single payer can't work this is based on a qualitative analysis that you did of single payer right it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that your industry has billions of dollars in profits to be made by keeping the status quo right <laughs> <laughs> So David here goes on to explain on behalf of all insurance providers why it can't work and what Congress needs to do to actually make our current system work. He states it can't work because it will eliminate choice, undermine quality, put a chill on medical innovation and place an even heavier burden on hardworking taxpayers. The most effective way to ensure affordable care and coverage is to strengthen the private market's ability to serve the American people, whether it's building upon private plans serving nearly 
180 million people who get their coverage through their employer or tens of millions who depend on private plans that partner with public programs Merit Road. Well, we're going to have to agree to disagree here because it actually doesn't eliminate choice. What single payer does is it expands choice because currently we don't really have a choice. If Americans get sick, then they either go bankrupt or they die. So we don't have a choice. Now we're fucked if we get sick and we don't have insurance. That's not choice. That's the opposite of choice. That's the illusion of choice. And by saying that the free market model gives us more choices, it doesn't give us more choices. Holding a gun to our head and telling us that we have to buy your shitty insurance plans that rip us off, that's not choice. And if it is a choice, then I'll opt for a different option, which is single payer. But if Americans are still inclined to purchase health insurance on the private market, then they can still do that. Now, I would personally abolish the private market to make sure that we don't have a two-tiered healthcare system so rich and poor people receive the same quality of care, but that's not what Bernie's bill even does. It still gives people the ability to purchase private insurance on the so-called free market. So the difference is that if they no longer want it or can't afford it, then they don't die or go bankrupt if they get sick. They actually get the care they need. So that improves choice. And I want to get to the solution that he gives us here because I think it's inherently hypocritical. He states that we need to strengthen the private market's ability to serve the American people. Well, you greedy pigs in the private market had your chance to serve the American people and you decided that profit would be your motive and not actually providing health care to Americans. That's why people are dying and going bankrupt. It's because of your greed. So you had your chance to serve the American people and you didn't want to serve the American people. You chose to serve yourselves instead. And furthermore, when it comes to strengthening the private market, we're already doing that. We are pumping billions of dollars into this healthcare system to salvage it and to prop up these shitty private plans. And it's not working. What do you think Obamacare was? The government pays to subsidize private health insurance plans and costs continue to rise and millions of people are still left out. So I'm sorry, there's no strengthening the private market plan. You have to take the profit motive out of it, which is why the private market will never ever work when it comes to healthcare. Because when you economize something as important as healthcare, then you shift the goal of health care providers. You make it so that way they care more about profit. So the free market had its chance and it failed miserably, which is why a majority of Americans now support single payer and no longer trust these health insurance companies to take care of our health care needs. And CEOs of health insurance companies know their greed has catalyzed the push for single payer, which is why Brent Saunders, the CEO of Allergen, explained at a recent conference in Boston that companies like his have got to prove that the free market can still work. Otherwise, voters might finally say enough is enough. You know, I think we, we've got to do things to bring that trust back because ultimately someone's going to be in the White House, somebody's going to be in Congress, someone's going to be somewhere and going to have say enough's enough. Let's just change the whole system. Let's go to one payer. Let's do something. Unless we really have shown that this model works, it delivers innovation, it delivers it in a fair and appropriate way, and they're, they're good, strong, profitable companies. It seems lately that the Democrats are starting to talk about a single-payer system more as a platform or an acid test for certain candidates. Are you seeing that uh, the same way? Do you think that there has been an uptick in that type of activity, or do you think, no, this always happens around elections? No, I think, you know, my view is that, that unfortunately, um, you know, the party that, that seems to be out of power tends to move dramatically to the left or to the right, right? We saw it when the Democrats 
in Obama's first term when the Democrats swept, we saw the Tea Party emerge, right? And we saw a real push to get more conservative candidates through the primary system to, to really be, you know, much more conservative. We're seeing almost the equal but opposite reaction here now that they've been swept out. The, the left of the, 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 their party um, is, is really taken, um, gotten a louder voice and taken control. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders and, uh, and others in that movement have really tried to vet candidates, you know, on the opposite side of the coin as the Tea Party was. So we're seeing the divide go further, and clearly, you know, they want to go to a one, that part, part of the party wants to go to a one, one pair um, system. The problem with that is it's not going to happen, and then the farther they go apart, the more polarizing it becomes. And so do we actually get a practical solution? Do we actually get to helping the people who need it most, right, to get into a system that actually works? I think becomes more, I become more discouraged. So I love the pseudo-confidence that he expresses there because at the beginning of the clip, he expressed concern that Americans are getting fed up with the private insurance industry. And, you know, we're going to say at one point, enough is enough. And we're kind of on the verge of saying enough is enough as a society. And I would argue that we've already said that because a majority of Americans now support single payer. But towards the end there, he said, well, this will never happen. Oh, it's going to happen, all right. You need to start looking for a new job right now, Brent Saunders, because we're done. We are done with the greed and the power that you guys continue to exert over all of us Americans. You buy our politicians and you continue to rip us off and you don't even care that people are going bankrupt and dying because they have insurance from you, but it just doesn't cover some random medical emergency that they had. So that that's done. Those days are done. The days of the health insurance industry ruling America are of the past. So single payer will happen and the greed of CEOs, I mean, it's just super transparent. So I love that they came out against Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Uh, you know, I expected it, but I'm glad that they're doing this and vocalizing their opposition to it because they're really showing their true colors as if they hadn't already. But you are just proving our point for us and you are making the case for single payer even easier for us. You don't care about healthcare, you care about money. That's why we have to abolish you and go for single payer. So Fox Business News, which is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party, decided to talk about Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, and as you could have predicted, it was absolutely atrocious. Um, it was, I think, what I would refer to as quintessential fake news, even though I hate that term. I mean, it was just, it was bullshit. It, not only was it disingenuous, but their entire argument against it was based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how healthcare in this country works. So we'll watch it, and then I have a lot to say about this. So uh, what is the worst case scenario with Medicare for All? The worst case scenario is that the government, because they are paying our bills with taxpayers' money, gets in the business of telling us how to be healthy. The fact is, Kennedy, every donut you eat, you're now paying for the health care costs. Under Medicare for All, under single payer, then I will be paying for it. And I, or Kamala Harris, then gets to tell you not to eat it. I'm worried about them saying, well, three kids is fine, but any more than that is, is a little excessive because that's more healthcare people. When government is that involved in the most intimate aspect of the economy, which is healthcare, then you're going to have an increase in government control over our daily lives. And that's absolutely. my main concern. That is, that is absolutely it. And that's why you saw uh, Michelle Obama's well-intended food policies take effect in our nation's public schools hand-in-hand hand at the same time as her yep. uh, husband's 
Healthcare Act was passed in this country, and that's exactly right. And taxpayers should be going, if I am paying for it, why should I be funding the bad choices of individuals? And that can become extremely problematic. Yeah, so that was probably one of the dumbest conversations I've seen on cable news in a really long time. And I love how they're not even really trying to hide their agenda anymore. I mean, Kennedy just cut right to the chase. What's the worst case scenario when it comes to Medicare for all? I mean, they're not even trying to pretend to be fair and balanced anymore. They're just saying, hey, m make sure that you tell our viewers why they shouldn't be on board with something that would improve their own lives. So, I mean, that was just, I mean, I, I just found that hilarious. But when it comes to their actual discussion of single payer, Clearly, the individual who she brought on had no idea what he was talking about because the assumption here is that, well, Medicare for all would be bad for the taxpayer because the reason why medical costs continue to rise is because people make really bad decisions. I mean, they eat donuts and then they get diabetes. Then when people make these bad choices that lead to them needing more, you know, uh, medical treatment, then our taxes will increase as a result of other people's bad decisions. But that's not why healthcare costs are rising. First of all, they're rising because there's no cost controls. We, ju we just don't have cost controls in this country. And second of all, healthcare costs are continuing to rise because when people without insurance get sick and can't afford to pay their medical bills, guess what happens? How do you think health insurers recoup those costs? They recoup those costs and get their money back by raising monthly premiums on people with insurance. So if everyone's bill is paid, guess what happens? The cost of healthcare goes down. And when he talked about the government being able to make healthcare decisions on behalf of citizens, well, the implication here is that they'd be able to have so much control that they could restrict how many kids you could have in this country. But I mean, that won't happen. And we know that it won't happen because countries with single payer they don't have the government telling them how much kids to have. I mean, that's just a weird argument to make. And if you're forced to choose between the government making healthcare decisions for you and private insurance companies who have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value and profit off of healthcare, well, I think I'll opt for the big government. Because even though you like to claim that it's a big government boogeyman, well, when you have these companies who are providing you with healthcare, and when you when you economize something like healthcare and you make that profit the main incentive, then they're not going to give a shit about healthcare. They're going to care about making money off of you. But when you shift that responsibility to the government, well, the government will ensure that they provide you with healthcare. There's no profit to be made with the government. So I would opt for the big government rather than private health insurance companies because we've seen how they operate they're ripping us off people die and go bankrupt all the time even if they have health insurance so the big government boogeyman argument it just it's not going to resonate with people in 2017 because we're fed up with our private insurance companies that charge us thousands of dollars for health insurance deductibles and i'm sorry but these monthly premiums are absolutely ridiculous we're paying for healthcare that is inadequate, when a single payer system would give us the full range of benefits, Bernie's bill even includes dental care. So I'm sorry, <laughs> this this argument that you're making, it's terrible. But that's not the only argument that they make because they give us more reasons as to why we should be against single payer. And and oftentimes the argument that they make is, look at the rest of the industrialized world. They yeah. all have socialized medicine. Look at Sweden. Look at all of Scandinavia. Look at Western Europe. Uh, but you make a much more important point, which is the rest of the world looks to us. How? 
Well, they count on us for medical innovation because markets is where innovation gets created. And I'm a firm believer that we need a safety net for healthcare for sick people. Jesus made that very clear in the Bible uh, with the Good Samaritan story. But there should be a market with a safety net, and the market is what drives the innovation. So these other countries where it's all one big safety net, there's not the money pouring in that guides innovation. And if you say, oh, well, the government can fund it, I mean, I don't think anybody has good, uh, a lot of confidence in the ability for the government to pick better than the, the market does. The private sector is what drives innovation, and so far the rest of the world is sort of piggybacking on American innovation. So if then we step onto the same boat as Canada or onto the universal health care, all government provided, God forbid, like England, then I think you'll see the medical innovation dry up, and then that won't be good for the health of anyone. No, and you'll see generations uh, will suffer the consequences of uh, cratering positions that are no longer held by the best and brightest. You yep. want the best researchers, you want the best doctors, you want the best caregivers. How do you do that? You incentivize them to come into medical fields by maybe at some point making a good living. It's crazy how that happens. Yeah, so we, uh, and, but I ultimately have to say though, when I look at government run healthcare, not the Medicare for all, but the England version, again, we get back to the basic moral issue. You look at the boy, Charlie Gard, who died, who's the government would not let his parents try to keep him alive for yes. a few more months. That's the real problem. It's the moral problem when the government is in charge of our healthcare. And you will see more and more stories like that in this yep. country. Tim Carney, thank you so much. Okay. First of all, if you're going to exploit the Charlie Guard story for political purposes, at least have the common decency to get the facts straight. The Charlie Guard story, I mean, the decision that was made to not continue treatment, that wasn't made by the British government. It's not like Theresa May intervened and said, stop treating that child. This was a decision that his doctors made after they concluded that he had no chance of surviving. So actually get that story straight. But furthermore, furthermore, people who are against single payer, not just Republicans and Fox News, but Democrats as well, like Joe Manchin, they like to cite Charlie Gard as the reason why we should be against single payer. Because if you give government control of our health care, then this is what's going to happen. But even though they cite this one story relentlessly and continuously and repeatedly, they don't ever talk about the other stories, like Shalin, Amy Valela's daughter, who died because they didn't have access to health care. There are thousands of stories in this country of people going bankrupt and dying because they don't have health insurance. But this Charlie Guard story, just one story, one instance where they try to lie to you about the government making a decision, this government death panel, if you will, they use that story and cite it repeatedly. But that's incredibly disingenuous. And furthermore, if you're really worried about death panels, then you should be really terrified that we've had private insurance companies deciding for so long in this country when people get care, even if they have insurance. Because if you have insurance and for whatever reason you need a medical procedure that's not covered under your plan, well, that private insurance company, mind you, who only cares about profit, can then act as a death panel effectively and tell you that you don't receive the treatment you need. So if conservatives continue to cite this one story, then they better damn well make sure to acknowledge the thousands of stories about how private insurance companies don't cover procedures for people that have insurance. But I mean, the goal here is not to inform you, it's to mislead you and to scare you and trick you into thinking that single payer will make government death panels a reality. When we already have death panels in this country, they're called private insurance companies. Now, he makes another argument against single payer in this clip. He states that we should allow 
the private insurance industry, you know, to operate on the free market because that's really what drives innovation. Well, okay, let's accept that the free market does drive innovation. Well, first of all, does it really matter to us if they're innovating, if we don't have access to that innovation and the care? I mean, that, that point is a moot point if people don't actually have access to health insurance or health care. And second of all, conservatives keep saying that the free market drives innovation, but they never give you even a single example as to how health industry innovations come about specifically as a consequence of our market-based system. I mean, the reality is that we're still going to have innovation even with a single-payer system because as healthcare technology improves and medical research advances, I mean, there's going to be innovation. So that point doesn't even make sense. Finally, there is a free market and there's still going to be a free market. So if people don't want government-run healthcare, then they could just buy private insurance and continue doing what they've been doing. So this guy is arguing against what he claimed to be advocating for because he said that he's in favor of a social safety net with regard to healthcare, but single-payer is the ultimate safety net. But again, this is Fox News. They're not interested in giving you the facts and informing viewers. They're interested in promoting their corporatist agenda and the agenda of the Republican Party's health insurance industry donors. And that's, you know, part of the reason why people who watch Fox News, according to actual studies, are less informed than people who watch no news because Fox News is misinforming their viewers. And this clip here, this whole segment, mind you, was a perfect example as to how that's the case. Since Bernie Sanders introduced his Medicare for All bill, he's had to put up with a lot of really disingenuous and downright arbitrary attacks from pundits in the media. And no, I'm not just talking about Fox News because, of course, they attacked single-payer as well, specifically this particular bill. But in the so-called liberal media, there were some pundits that went after this bill with a vengeance. Now, one individual in particular who did this is Chuck Todd. Now, Chuck Todd is typically a more soft-spoken polite pundit that is known to give more softball interviews to politicians and never really challenges them. However, when it comes to the issue of single payer, well, things are a little bit different here for Chuck. Because throughout a series of clips here, it became really clear that Chuck Todd wasn't just holding this bill up to a reasonable level of scrutiny, which would be understandable, but he, he had the goal to downright destroy it. And I think that that will become clear after I show you a bunch of clips and interviews that he did with politicians who were promoting this particular bill. Now, he has a ton of arguments against this particular bill, but first of all, he states that it might be a bad idea because it is something that's divisive and it might actually hurt Democrats who are up for re-election in 2018 and 2020. And right now, Sanders is driving a big wedge between the progressive left and the moderate left with his Medicare for All healthcare bill. His backers include a lot of folks who are keeping their eyes on 2020. But get this, not a single Senate Democrat that's facing a tough re-election in 2018, including Sherrod Brown, who normally would be on board something like Medicare for All, they haven't signed on. The Senate's top Democrat, Chuck Schumer, won't endorse it either when asked about it today. In the age of Trump, a lot of folks from both sides are in survival mode with seemingly few good options. On the left, if you even the president isn't going to be impeached, as Senator Dianne Feinstein recently did, you get skewered by the base. So what Chuck Todd is doing here is he's promoting the idea that if you are a Democrat who's running in a relatively conservative state or a purple state, 
that you can't get on board with Medicare for All because conservative voters just won't go for that. But this is an outdated way of thinking because public opinion polls show that a majority of Americans, including a plurality of Republicans now, support a Medicare for All system. In fact, there's even been a number of focus groups with Trump supporters, and they've indicated that they also support the idea of single payer. So in asserting that the Democratic Party, you know, if you're up for re-election, you just can't push single payer, that's that's wrong. Yes, they can. If they push for single payer, that will make them even more likely to win because that will encourage their base, who's been disenfranchised over the course of the last decade, to come back out and support them once again. But Chuck Todd knows this. Chuck Todd has stated himself that he knows that public opinion on this particular issue has shifted in favor of single payer. But what he's contending is that, well, when people truly find out about how much their taxes will increase as a result of single payer, then they're just not going to go for it. But in this next clip here, Bernie Sanders explained exactly why he's wrong. Obviously, Senator, the, the issue of this is there, there's the idea of health care for all is something that has majority support. And then when you remind people how much it could cost, how much taxes go up, then people get concerned. And obviously you were concerned about the finances there. Explain, explain what you mean and how you can change the funding system to not make this so astronomical. Okay, very good question, Chuck. But here is my hope. You and I are going to discuss this within five minutes. I would hope very much that NBC and CBS and ABC allow us some serious discussion time to explain to people in our country why we are spending so much more than other countries. But very briefly, and I would hope that we can have an hour discussion at some point on this issue, very briefly, this is what we're going to do. Number one, private insurance companies in this country spend between 12 and 18 percent on administration costs and they're administering hundreds of different mm -hmm. private insurance plans. You have a deductible of 5,000, I have one of 8,000. It is incredibly complicated and very costly to administer. The cost of administering the Medicare program, a very popular program that works well for our seniors, is 2%. We can save approximately $500 billion a year just in administration costs. Okay. Second of all, because we pay so much more per capita on health and for our prescription drugs, by having Medicare negotiate drug prices, we can save over $100 billion there. So that's a lot of savings. Thirdly, and here is the important point, my Republican friends say, well, Bernie wants to raise your taxes. They forget to conveniently mention that Bernie wants to do away with the private insurance premiums that you're now paying. For example, Chuck, the average employer who has a worker mm -hmm. who makes $50,000 a year is spending $13,000 a year on health insurance for that worker. The worker himself or herself is spending $5,000, $18,000. Now, if our plan goes into, in, into effect, that $13,000 private insurance premium disappears for the employer, it goes down. The amount of money that the worker is now spending, that $5,000 goes down. We replace private insurance premiums right. with Medicare premiums. The average middle class worker saves money. Now that last part of what Bernie Sanders said is really important because even though taxes will go up, well, you're still going to have more money in your pocket if you're an ordinary American because you will no longer have to pay your monthly insurance premium. You won't have to pay for deductibles. 
And this is a really important point that, as Bernie Sanders put it, a lot of not just Republicans, but mainstream media pundits conveniently leave out. But Chuck Todd also raises another objection to single payer. And I think that this is more reasonable still. We haven't gone into full-on attack mode yet, but he asks, you know, how are you going to convince people who currently like their healthcare policy to switch to single payer? And this is what Bernie Sanders had to say. Well, I, I, I guess the question I have for you, though, is how do you convince some 80% of Americans who do get health care from their employer that it, the syst, it is worth rejiggering the system again. That seems to be the other challenge here because as you know, right. people that get employer-based private insurance are basically happy with their insurance. The people that are not happy are those in that, in that other 20%. Well, yes and no. And, and in fact, we are going to need a lot of discussion. And again, I would hope that on NBC, CBS, ABC, we can begin to have that kind of discussion uh, in a serious way. But here is the truth. You know, Gallup does a lot of polling on this issue. And what they find out is that the most popular health insurance program in this country is Medicare. Right. People, seniors feel really good. Veterans Administration ranks very high. In fact, private insurance company is not all that popular. Well, we have to tell the average worker the only thing that is changing in this program, this is not quote unquote a government takeover. The only thing that's changing is the color of your insurance card from a Blue Cross Blue Shield card, a United Health card, okay. to a Medicare for All card. You're still going to go to the doctor you want. It's the same structure. So up until this point with these clips that I've shown you, I think that in raising objections to single payer, I'm fine with that. I understand that in introducing this bill, there would be criticism and you do have to hold it up to scrutiny to prove that it will work because I believe in it. So I, I'm not against any and all criticism to single payer. I think that it's important that we make the case for it now and address all of these criticisms. But what Chuck Todd does in these next couple of clips, it really demonstrates that he has an agenda. It's not just about holding single payer, you know, up to a certain level of scrutiny. I mean, he just outright goes in for the kill and he goes after single payer with a vengeance. And if these last couple of clips didn't make his agenda clear, then these ones certainly will. Why muddy up this issue? Why spend so much time working on a new health care plan when the Democratic Party took so many uh, bullets for fighting for Obamacare and you've still been fighting for it and it's still the law of the land. Well, in the course of uh, arguing over Trump care, Trump wealth care, I might add, uh, we talked to our citizens across the country. I had 36 town halls in Oregon, mostly in Republican counties, two thirds of them. And what those citizens in Republican counties came out and said is our health care system is just too complicated, too inefficient, and too stressful. And there was real desire, and I'm talking Republican counties, for a yeah. simple, seamless health care that just by virtue of being an American, you have coverage when you need it. Look, it sounds great. Everybody wants this until you tell them they're going to have their taxes raised in order to pay for it. That's number one. But again, I go back to Obamacare. Is this your way of saying Obamacare is a failure? No, this is our way of saying that in the course of defending Obamacare, because it was such a leap forward, we're also very aware of how stressful health care remains. It's just a gauntlet of paperwork and complexity that no other developed citizens and no other developed nation face and shouldn't have to face here. So, and it's cheaper. It's cheaper for our nation. Think well, about I, the fact that I, Let me ask you this. You say it's cheaper for the nation, but every... Whether you use the Sanders estimate of $14 trillion over 10 years, an additional $1.4 trillion in the federal spending, 
And that's one estimate. Another puts it twice that a year, $3 trillion a year. Where do you get this money? Because the same estimates say that the total spending by our citizenry on federal budget and off federal budget put together, because that's the total cost to our society, goes down. And you can imagine why. Medicare has a, an overhead of about 3%. Private insurance has 25 to 30% that's wasted. Private insurance denies your claims even when they should cover what you have. So every time you are sick or you do have an accident or a member of your family, you have to go to war and just in order to get the bill paid. That's an additional piece of the stress. So as you can see here, Chuck Todd is being a lot more forceful and this is really not characteristic of his usual temperament on, on his show. And he's really being aggressive in trying to combat single payer. And he pushed the same idea that citizens only support this until they learn that their taxes will go up. And he also asked the question about where you're going to find the money to pay for this bill. But that point is moot because we're currently spending $49 trillion to prop up our current shitty system, whereas Medicare for All would literally save us trillions of dollars and cover more people. So it's cheaper because if every single medical bill in this country is paid for, then that keeps the costs down. But in our current system, the costs continue to skyrocket because there's no cost control mechanism. And when people get sick and they don't have insurance and they get medical attention, well, if they can't afford to pay for those medical bills, then that cost gets passed on to people with monthly insurance premiums. That's why the cost is going up. Now, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that Medicare for All actually did cost more than our current system. Well, that still doesn't mean that we shouldn't support it and that we don't have a moral obligation to take care of our citizens because the Senate just overwhelmingly approved a $700 billion military spending bill. So I'm sure that after hearing about this news, Chuck Todd is going to come out strongly and challenge another senator who approved this spending bill and ask them how they're going to pay for that too, right? Well, of course not, because when it comes to corporate media, you know, if you're spending money to prop up the military-industrial complex and kill people, you don't have to explain to us how you're going to pay for this. But when it comes to taking care of our own citizens, if there's even a possibility that that's going to cost more, then you better damn well figure out a way to fund it. It's just our priorities are completely ass-backwards here, and it makes me so angry. Every time I hear a politician ask this question, it's not that, you know, they shouldn't be concerned with how to pay for single payer, because I think we all should, but it's the hypocrisy in giving defense bills a pass, but making sure that we better damn well come up with some way to pay for this. I mean, why don't you ask the same question and pay the same level of scrutiny to bills that are harmful? Why don't, why doesn't anyone in the mainstream media do that? It's because this is what you get with corporate media. But I mean, Jeff Merkley in this interview, he was answering all of uh, Chuck Todd's questions, I think his responses were perfectly reasonable, but when Chuck Todd started to kind of run out of ways to challenge him, he just said, well, you know what, I don't believe you. I think it sounds too rosy. I understand with the way you're painting it, but I'll be honest, Senator Merkley, it sounds a little too rosy. I, I, I hear you on all that, but it sounds like you're promising the world. And it feels like I'm having a deja vu when Republicans essentially spent eight years over-promising and under-delivering, and their voters have now punished them for it. Their voters turned to a guy that had no experience ever running for political office to be their nominee because they were tired of broken promises to the base. How does this not end up as a broken promise, pie in the sky, over-promise, under-deliver? 
Well, I can certainly contest your, your, your theory there because they turned to someone who promised the world and had no plan to back it up. Your health care will cost less. Your health care will be a higher quality. And then how are you, guaran that, that, how are that you guaranteeing? This is not about Donald Trump, though. My point was the Republican Party went down this road, over-promising, over-promising, not delivering. This feels like something there is no pathway to pass it. Are you not raising expectations only to essentially bring back the cynicism that politicians just love to tell you everything is easy, we're going to make the system simple, and then you can't get it done? It, it would be over-promising to say this bill is going to pass this year, that it's going to get a hearing. But to lay it out as a vision, as this honestly has been laid out, to say that we need to have discussions across America about how to make our health care better, and that's the way Bernie presented it today. Uh, to, this, is, this is important to our country, to wrestle with how we have a simply better system than we have at the moment. So those who say never talk about a vision of where we could go to because you can't get there tomorrow, I would say we'd never have any progress. So understand just how foolish Chuck Todd looks here. He invokes Donald Trump, but then when Jeff Merkley responds and talks about why this is different than Donald Trump, then Chuck Todd says, no, you know, don't change the conversation. I, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump. I want to talk about this bill. And furthermore, he talks about cynicism. Well, the reason why Americans are cynical is because the Democratic Party, or neither party, has been fighting for them. But with this bill, this will reduce cynicism because for the first time in what seems like forever, politicians are fighting for us. We want single-payer. You know this, Todd. You said it. A majority of the public wants single-payer. So... Chuck Todd knows all of this, but he has an agenda. His agenda is to defeat single-payer, which is why he's a lot more aggressive in these clips and combative even than we've seen him in a really long time because it looks like he got a stern talking to by an executive at MSNBC that told him to stop being so timid, at least when it comes to this bill, because if Medicare for All causes health insurers to go bankrupt, then that's millions in potential advertising dollars that MSNBC loses. Now, of course, I'm only speculating, but the point is that the media has an agenda. Chuck Todd wasn't interested in informing people about Medicare for All and raising these objections so that way they would know how to, you know, come up with counter arguments. What Chuck Todd wanted to do was defeat single payer. And throughout the course of this last week, we've heard him make a ton of different arguments against single payer. First of all, he said that citizens will only support it until they realize how much the taxes go up. He literally said it's pie in the sky. It'll never get passed. The timing is off and Democrats should be only defending the ACA. It sounds too rosy. It's too expensive. Well, here's the reason why you're wrong, Todd. It's because Medicare for all is not a new idea. Why don't you bring on some Canadians and ask them what they think about their Medicare for All system. They love it. They absolutely love their single-payer system and they approve of it and they take pride in their system. This is what public opinion polls in Canada shows. So you're wrong. All these objections that you're raising about how it's too rosy and it'll never happen, the same people uh, within the health insurance industry made the same argument, I'm sure, back when they were pushing for this in Canada. So you don't care about that, though, do you, Todd? You only care about defeating single-payer because you work for a large corporation that has an agenda, a corporate agenda specifically, and your goal isn't to inform viewers. Your goal is to defeat single-payer. But we're on to you, Chuck Todd, and what you're doing here is completely arbitrary, it's unfair, and it's downright immoral because in choosing to defeat single-payer at the behest of your corporate overlords, you are helping to maintain the status quo 
which isn't working out for Americans. People are dying, Chuck, because they don't have health insurance. People are going bankrupt because they don't have health insurance. And as an elite who's rich, who's a multimillionaire, you'll never know what that struggle is like. So what you're doing here is damaging. It's so harmful and it's immoral. And you should be ashamed of yourself. I talked about how Chuck Todd is trying to deliberately misinform his viewers when it comes to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, but Chuck Todd, unsurprisingly, is not alone because the aggregate corporate media establishment, ever since he introduced this bill, has kind of dogpiled on Bernie Sanders to attack this bill in every which way and tear it apart from different angles. And in this segment, I kind of want to take a moment to go over some of these attacks because none of them are actually substantive. They are all superficial, arbitrary attacks on Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. So, first of all, we have Steve Chapman of the Chicago Tribune who referred to Bernie Sanders' bill as, quote, a delusional promise, saying his proposal really should be called Medicare for All and a Pony. It's everything you could want and then some. Now, Chapman's main criticism is based on the fact that it goes further than the Canadian healthcare system by offering dental care. And since he thinks this will never get passed, well, it's setting the Democratic Party up for failure because there's no way to deliver here. Now, Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post referred to Bernie Sanders as a snake oil salesman and literally compared him to Trump because Trump also promised to cover everybody, but then went back on that promise. And also, this journalist claims that Bernie Sanders shouldn't propose this now because the Democrats are currently fighting to protect the Affordable Care Act. But my response to that is, one, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and two, by saying that Bernie Sanders is akin to Donald Trump because Trump didn't propose a bill, well, you aren't realizing that Bernie Sanders has just proven that he's not like Donald Trump by proposing this bill. So that argument, it's self-defeating. I mean, you acknowledge that he has put forward this bill. So to call him a snake oil salesman is just, it's idiotic to me. Now, we also have Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine who argues that Bernie's bill gets us 0% closer to single payer, claiming Sanders is not a details person, though. He prefers to act as though the important barrier is the abstract notion of government-run insurance, turning every question about specifics into a question about values. In other words, Bernie's bill is superficial, and it doesn't provide us with the details to actually transition to a single-payer system from a logistical and pragmatic standpoint. And basically, the author here is arguing that it can't be done. It's weird, though, how other countries were able to find a way to get it done. And furthermore, when you state that Bernie's bill moves us 0% closer to single payer, that's just factually incorrect because we now have a bill and it has 16 co-sponsors. So we are very clearly moving closer towards single payer. And furthermore, it's not just the co-sponsors. I mean, there are organizations now fighting for it. There are grassroots activists pushing for it. We are literally primary and corporate Democrats who won't get on board with it. So every day we're moving closer to single payer, but in trying to promote this idea that we are 0% closer with this bill, you're trying to make us think that it's pie in the sky and it'll never get passed when we know that that's bullshit because, again, other countries have single payer. This isn't a new idea. Now, turning to Politico, they claim that Bernie's timing is off with his push for this bill because Republicans are still hell-bent on repealing the Affordable Care Act. In fact, this article literally even hints that Bernie Sanders' push for a single payer 
might have actually catalyzed the latest Republican effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And these articles are just the tip of the iceberg because there were many more attacks against Bernie Sanders' bill. Um, and that's just in print media. I mean, when you go to cable news, there were more attacks on Bernie Sanders. Again, I talked about Chuck Todd, but also the self-proclaimed progressive Joy Reid covered this on her show as well, of course. And she talked about it in the most disingenuous, albeit unsurprising way possible. Benji Sarlin was tweeting about this really great Vox piece that Ezra Klein wrote. So yep. going through the challenges yes. in trying yeah. to do health care, including the big amount of taxes you'd have to raise, taking 250 million people off their health care yep. and putting them on this program that yeah. the government runs and all of that. You know, and Benji Sarlin asked the question, are the Bernie Kratz going to accuse any Democrat who doesn't sign on to that whole blue plate special? Are they going to accuse them of being establishment and walk away from them the way that a percentage of Sanders supporters walked with Hillary Clinton. Is there a risk that in 2018 you have a faction of Democrats who are so purist that if you don't sign on to that Bernie bill, you're done and they will literally threaten the reelection of Democrats yeah. and threaten Democrats ability to take over a House of Congress? Yes, there's no question that that's a risk. Uh, and the tone has to be set by Bernie himself. Now, I, I see that he has said that this is not going to be a litmus test for 2018. And it's good that he said it. But I think he needs to say it and say it and say it and say it. And uh, it will also it'll be more important in 2020 uh, when when the presidential candidates come up. But it's going to be very important in both elections. And and look, I, I think on the one hand, it's great that Sanders did this. It opens up yeah, the field. It opens up space to talk about health care in a lot of different ways. And so and, and they're playing offense and pleasing the base. On the other hand, what happens when the Congressional Budget Office scores this and the taxes are like through the roof? Real fast. It's not enough for, for Senator Sanders to say this is an litmus test over and over again. He has to condemn the people who yeah. attack. Yeah. And that's something he has shown no willingness to do. Yeah. Well, first of of all, this is a litmus test. We've already said that. They must not watch the Humanist Report. And also, if by attack you mean we're going to continue to call out and expose the corruption of Democrats who are shills for the health insurance industry and primary them, if they're not going to get on board with this, then yeah, we're actually going to do that. In fact, we're already doing that. Because if you look at Ruben Kewin in Nevada's 4th Congressional District and Denny Heck in Washington's 10th Congressional District, we are primarying them specifically because they are unwilling to co-sponsor H.R. 676. So they keep contemplating whether or not progressives might make this a litmus test and might challenge Democrats who aren't on board with this. But you don't have to you don't have to question whether or not we're going to do that. We are going to do that. And if you don't like it, tough shit, because Medicare for all is something we will not stop pushing. So I hope that that clears things up for you guys. But their comment about taxes is what really made me the most angry because this is a Republican talking point. First of all, even if it is a sharp tax increase, well, that's still going to save us money if we don't have to pay our monthly health insurance premiums. I mean, I don't think they realize just how expensive health insurance is every single month and how many thousands of dollars Americans invest in healthcare every single year. That's still subpar. That doesn't cover everything we need it to cover. And then on top of our monthly insurance premiums, we've got the deductibles. We've got co-payments. I mean, they are so detached from the struggle of ordinary Americans. I don't even understand how they're that dense. I mean, it's obvious. Listen to what we're saying. We don't like the current model. It's not working. But I mean, look, these talking heads, they're put there. They're on that show to attack single payer and help to maintain the status quo. They're doing exactly what they were paid to do. But if they honestly think that progressives are going to be silent, 
Well, we're not. And even if they really want Bernie Sanders to try to rein in his supporters, Bernie Sanders isn't going to save them. Bernie Sanders isn't going to save corporate Democrats from progressives who will be fighting for this. This is a litmus test. And if you don't get the fuck out of our way, get ready to be steamrolled by progressives because we are not stopping because we have more momentum for single pair than we've had in a lot of our lifetimes, especially for us millennials. And if you think we're going to be dumb enough to back down right now when (laughs) public opinion is shifting... You're even dumber than I thought. You're more out of touch and idiotic than I thought. The Republican Party's Obamacare repeal and replacement bill is back yet again for what is now probably the 100th time this year, I think. And this zombie of a bill is now being proposed by Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham. And this iteration of this draconian health care bill is not necessarily any different than the last version But it's still scarier because what's different about this bill is that it actually might pass. So according to the LA Times, they report Cassidy Graham follows a recognizable conservative template. The ACA's Medicaid expansion and tax credits to purchase insurance from the private market would be eliminated and replaced with block grants given to states. When a Republican proposes a block grant, this almost always means a big spending cut, and Cassidy Graham is no exception. It would reduce federal healthcare spending by about $400 billion in less than a decade. And not only would it end the Medicaid expansion, it would entail savage cuts to Medicaid as a whole. In another retrograde move, the bill would effectively end the ACA's protection of people with pre-existing conditions as states could choose to allow insurers to charge people with such conditions higher premiums. Millions of people would lose insurance and many more would be effectively locked out of private markets as subsidies became less generous and states allowed insurers to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. As with the previous Republican proposals, the effect of Cassidy Graham would be in increases in preventable death, suffering, and financial ruin. But we don't even know how many people will lose coverage because the Congressional Budget Office won't have time to properly score the bill before the September 30th deadline to pass it under reconciliation rules. We do know the number will be large. So, think about how egregious and immoral this bill is. They want to cut healthcare spending by $400 billion Meanwhile, they just overwhelmingly approved a $700 billion spending bill for the military. So if we're using our money to kill people in foreign countries, that's fine. We have the money for that. But when it comes to taking care of our own sick Americans, we don't have the money for that. We have to actually cut spending and allow states to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, this is so immoral It's honestly unfathomable how anyone can support it, but there is support among Republicans, and what makes this bill a little bit more frightening is that the previous holdouts, like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, they actually might be on board with it this time around. So Matt Fuller of HuffPost explains that Senate Republicans who once seemed resolutely opposed to even the most modest Obamacare repeal suddenly sounded less resolute Monday. The proposal is seemingly less repellent to Senator Lisa Murkowski, one of the three Senate Republicans who voted against the skinny repeal in July, along with Susan Collins and John McCain. Murkowski told the Huffington Post on Monday that she's undecided 
reported on Graham Cassidy, as the measure is known, and that she and her staff were still looking to see how Alaska would make out under the bill. Now, there's a couple reasons why Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and John McCain might actually be on board with this particular bill. And first of all, they're selling this as a states' rights bill when I mean, it's as states' rights as the last bill, so that doesn't necessarily make a difference. And also, there's a deadline, so they're really forced to choose quickly. But what makes this really interesting is that when she states there how she's looking at how this bill will affect Alaska, well, what other Republicans are trying to do is they're trying to tempt people like Lisa Murkowski to get on board by offering pork in this bill, so particularized benefits that will only help out Alaska, and that's what is influencing her, so that way she can then go back to her constituents and brag about how, look, I got this done for Alaskans. This is what I did. So, I mean, they're actually being really sneaky, really clever, but there's another reason. Their donors are threatening to withhold funds from them if they don't actually back this bill. And when I say withhold funds, I mean withhold funds from the aggregate party because the Koch brothers and their network, they're saying that if they don't get health care and tax reform passed, well, the Republican Party shouldn't expect donations from them come 2018 and 2020. So, I mean, this is despicable. This is absolutely despicable for the Republicans who actually had a conscience, presumably, like Lisa Murkowski. I mean, now they're trying to tempt her to get on board with this draconian so-called healthcare bill by offering pork for her. And, you know, she's also being strong-armed by the party's donors because clearly Republicans, if if they withhold money and cite healthcare reform and their inability to pass it as a reason, then certainly the party will come down on Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and John McCain pretty hard. So... They're really, really, I mean, they're pulling out all the stops to get this bill passed. And it's so sickening. This really shows the extent to which the modern Republican Party is the party of death. They approve new military spending bills that are larger than they've been in a really long time. But when it comes to healthcare, they want to cut healthcare. They want to make sure that more people end up dying. Now, they're not telling you that this is their intentions. They're not unequivocally saying we want people to die, but that's what will happen if they vote for this bill. And by pushing for this bill, they are pushing for Americans to die due to a lack of healthcare. Because when you cut off healthcare access and you make it more difficult for Americans to get healthcare, well, as a result of that, as a direct result of that, people die. So the Republican Party is the party of death and destruction. They push for bills that destroy the world and cut health care of their own citizens. I mean, what a despicable, immoral joke of a political party. Republican lawmakers likely see that when it comes to single payer, the writing is on the wall, at least nationally. I mean, there's a ton of momentum for it. But we're especially seeing a lot of enthusiasm at the local level as grassroots activists push for their state governments to enact single-payer health care plans. But the Republican Party, knowing that their health insurance donors are counting on them to perpetuate the status quo, well, they're now trying to attack single-payer and attack it at the state level specifically. So... What is the so-called states' rights party trying to do to stop single-payer's momentum? Well, they're trying to restrict states' rights. So they're actually reversing their position on support for states' rights. So according to Zaid Jelani and Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, 
They explained that Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy plans to use the most recent effort to repeal and replace portions of the Affordable Care Act to push an amendment that would bar states from enacting their own single-payer systems, he told reporters on Monday. When asked by The Intercept on Tuesday about the status of his legislation, Kennedy said that the bill's co-sponsors, Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, told him that the measure already banned single-payer, but that he was welcome to offer his amendment either way. I don't think states should have the authority to take money from the American taxpayer and set up a single-payer system, Kennedy said. Now, some people think that that's inconsistent with the idea of flexibility, but that's what the United States Congress is for. I very much believe in flexibility, and I know the governors want flexibility, but it's our job to make sure that that money is properly spent. The irony, of course, is that the Graham-Cassidy repeal effort is pitched as giving more power to states. I believe that most Republicans like the idea of state control healthcare versus Washington, D.C.-controlled healthcare, Graham said Tuesday. And if this repeal effort fails, he warned, darkness would be coming. At the end of the day, this is the only process left available to stop a march towards socialism, he said. So, in other words, the Republican Party is only pro-states' rights when it's convenient for them. But if they see an issue that they don't like, well then... They're going to restrict states' rights. It doesn't matter how hypocritical it makes them look. It doesn't matter if that actually undermines what they're selling and the brand of conservatism and pseudo-libertarianism that they're selling. They don't care. You know, they see that momentum is moving in the favor of single-payer. And the way that they're going to stop that momentum at the state level, at least, is to just outright ban it. I mean, this party is a joke. It's a complete joke. And... They continuously push this idea that they're pro-states' rights and small government, but you are literally saying that states don't have rights. This is counter to what the Republican Party's philosophy has been over the course of the last several decades. I mean, at least since Reagan, with the Reagan Revolution, he maintained that big government is bad and small government and state governments, you know, they're preferable to a national government, which is why he wanted to reduce regulations and whatnot. But I mean, the Republican Party, their only goal is to appease their corporate overlords. They are bought and paid for 1000% by not just the health insurance industry, but basically every special interest you can imagine. So, these Republican scumbags, you know, they can try to ban single-payer at the state level, but nationally speaking, it's going to happen. I mean, they don't even really have to do this, if you think about it, because you have special interests and health insurance lobbyists already at the state level. I mean, look at California, who are trying to stop any efforts towards single-payer at the state level, but then they are trying to really make sure that there's going to be no way that this passes. But it doesn't, look, it doesn't matter. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, that's going to pass. It's going to become the law of the land in this country, whether they like it or not. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I know it's going to happen. And with all the momentum we see right now, with even a plurality of Republicans getting on board, you're not going to stop this train. So single payer will happen. And this attempt to just ban it is honestly pathetic. Bill Maher is someone who I view as the quintessential out-of-touch elite who 
likes to propose solutions to problems he thinks ordinary Americans face, when in actuality, he doesn't know what problems we face because he lives in an elitist bubble. Now, the good thing about Bill Maher is that presumably he does seem genuinely interested in finding out what Americans actually care about and what we want. And a constant theme on his show, recently anyways, is that he's been wondering why the electorate just didn't go for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and why millennials often stay home. But the problem is, even though he's curious about these things, he never actually talks with ordinary Americans. He rarely brings on millennials or actual progressives on his show, and instead, he just brings on other rich elites and politicians, and then they'll all proceed to yell at us for not falling in line, rather than actually listening to what we have to say. But recently, he did demonstrate that he's willing to listen to so-called average Americans, and he brought Ken Bone on his show. So if you remember Ken Bone, he appeared at a debate and uh, the goal of bringing Ken Bone on the show was to talk to someone who was an undecided voter and figure out why he was torn between Clinton and Trump. Now, Bill Maher referred to Ken Bone as someone that was gettable for the Democratic Party. And while people like Ken Bone are important, Bill Maher doesn't realize that before the Democratic Party tries to win over centrist voters like Ken Bone, they need to appeal to their own base. Because we learned in 2016 that left-wing voters aren't going to automatically support Democrats no matter what, because the party has moved so far to the center-right that there's now a large portion of the electorate that was formerly the party's core base that they've abandoned in an attempt to court centrist and right-wing voters, and that's not working out for them. But nonetheless, I still do give him credit for trying to reach out to someone that is at least not in one of his elitist bubbles, but rather than talking to more individual uh, vo or ordinary voters, he decided to bring on more of his rich friends to explain American politics to all of us peasants. Now, I personally had a ton of problems with Bill Maher's latest episode. I mean, first of all, his panel literally took the time to talk about the so-called slopification of America, where Americans dress badly and don't take pride in the way that they look. Now, he did, you know, to be fair, bring on someone who was a fashion expert who was, I believe, the host of Project Runway. But I mean, it's still an out-of-touch statement to make. Most Americans don't even have $500 in savings in the bank account, so they're not going to purchase fucking suits that look fancy. They don't care about that. They care about feeding their children. So, I mean, if you want to appear out-of-touch, that's one really great way to do it. But that wasn't even the worst part of this panel because they talked about how the Democratic Party can unite their base, who are currently divided, and the conversation was just hilariously ironic. What do you think the Democrats should do to repair this, or should they repair it? Do you mean to repair the rift between? Yes. You know, I think we should stop thinking about Bernie Sanders. I would really love to stop thinking about him. I mean, <laughs> I know you. I know you. You found him kind of benign. You know, I did not find him benign. I found him to be an unbelievably irritating, narcissistic old man. <laughs> You know, and I also kept thinking, like, who leaves New York when they're 18? Is that what you do? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's who you have there. Like, when you look around and think, you know, no, I can't make it. I'm going to Vermont. That was Fran Lebowitz. She called Bernie Sanders a narcissistic old man. And my only response to that is she's a Hillary Clinton supporter. A Hillary Clinton supporter is calling Bernie Sanders a narcissistic old man. I don't need to say anything else <laughs> about that clip, but it gets even worse, if you could believe it. I think we should 
please forget about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. This is a battle that's over. It's over. I, I agree. Well, and, and I also think there's this problem of the, the rift in the left where, where there's a section of the left that wants the purest, more snowy than driven snow candidate. <laughs> yes. Snowflakier yeah. than the snowflakier snowflake. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they want. And that's not only a problem in this country. It's a problem in England where they want Jeremy Corbyn, who represents that ideal of leftiness, right. which can't possibly be elected. Or in France, the, the Mélenchon people who don't want to vote for Macron because he's not purely left enough. And what all this does is to drive a wedge through which the right can come. And, and there's something you said on this show a few months ago that I've, I have to tell you, I have been quoting Bill. Wow. Yeah. You said that we have to learn to distinguish between an imperfect friend and a deadly enemy. Yes. So Salman Rushdie here says that there's a section of the left that wants the purest of the pure, the snowflakiest of the snowflakiest. Uh, and he says that this is a problem in England as well, where the left really wants Jeremy Corbyn. But, quote, that ideal of leftiness can't possibly be elected. Did you not see what happened in the last, last election in the UK? Theresa May called an election because she wanted to consolidate power and improve her party's standing in parliament, and she lost seats. It was a political upset. So you're telling me that Jeremy Corbyn can't win after you just witnessed what happened in the UK, where Jeremy Corbyn basically proved all of his naysayers wrong? Are you, are you seriously going to argue that right now? I mean, it's like these people are living in an alternate universe. Progressive ideas are popular. And really, what Rushdie is saying here is that we shouldn't have standards. That's really what he's saying. Because when you have standards and dare to expect politicians in a democracy to represent you, then you end up dividing the left and splitting the vote and allowing conservatives to win. But when the Democratic Party moved to the right and became more neoliberal, that's what led to them losing more than 1,000 seats in legislatures across the country. Obama won in a landslide when he ran as a progressive, and as he moved more and more to the right, once he was elected, Democrats began to lose again. I mean, the same thing keeps happening, and they don't pick up on the pattern. So, the Democratic Party has been ignoring their base for decades, ever since the Reagan Revolution, when they tried to compete with Republicans by moving more to the right, and finally, when progressives step up and say, hey, we're here, you should represent us, because... We're not coming out to support you because you're not putting forward policies that we care about. Well, then all these neoliberal centrist Democrats come out and say, well, you should stop having standards. You should stop telling them to move back to the left when them moving to the right is what led to these defeats. So, I mean, I just I can't comprehend why they seem genuinely interested in finding out how Republicans came to power and how a demagogue like Donald Trump came to power, but yet they don't want to listen to what we have to say. Bill, if you honestly care about why the Democratic Party is not in power when you have a party as crazy and extremist as the Republicans, you need to bring more progressives on your show and actually listen and not just reinforce all of the bad decisions that Democrats have made throughout the years and put yourself in an echo chamber because that's not a way that you're going to actually help political dialogue in this country. If you claim to be a left-winger, then actually speak with left-wingers. You keep bringing on centrists. When was the last time you brought a true progressive on your program? I honestly can't remember. You keep bringing on media shills who attack Bernie Sanders and say that the Democratic Party is doing everything right and they don't need to change or reform anything when they keep losing 
Again, you guys are the ones who have been in control and you've been losing. But yet you say that us having standards is what is going to lead to the Democratic Party losing? Get the fuck out of here. That's just stupidity right there. So if Bill Maher honestly cares about winning and how the Democratic Party can defeat extremists like Republicans, then why don't you actually invite a progressive on the show, like Jenk Uger, Kyle Kalinske, and speak with them, rather than just reinforcing everything that you think you already know by bringing on people in your elitist bubble that agree with you. So lately, Hillary Clinton has been absolutely everywhere in an attempt to promote her new book, What Happened. I mean, she's been on The View, she's been on CNN, she's been on MSNBC, she's been on CBS, she's been on My Nightmares, she's been everywhere, she's been making the rounds, and ultimately, in promoting and writing this book, uh, she is trying to figure out, as she puts it, What happened? Yeah. What happened? And how did it happen? And what could I have done differently? Or what could have happened that didn't happen. Well, where do we start? I mean, you rigged the primaries, shunned your own base, and decided to court Republican voters instead of actual progressives. But I don't even have to get into all of that again, because throughout the course of the last couple of weeks, you know, when you look at a series of interviews that she's done, I mean, it becomes very clear exactly what happened. You happened, Hillary Clinton. Your hubris and entitlement and thinking that you were owed the White House is exactly why voters rejected you. Senator Sanders, obviously mm -hmm. he has a strong voice now in the Democratic Party. He comes under a lot of criticism from you in the book. What political sin did he commit other than choosing to run against you? Well, it's not the political sin he committed. It was the uh, failure to move quickly to unify the party and his supporters. And I know a little bit about this. Because, After it was clear that he yes, wasn't going to it was clear I was going to be the nominee like in March or April. It was beyond any doubt uh, in June. And in 08, we ran a much closer, tougher primary contest between President Obama and myself. Um, it was really close. And I immediately endorsed him. And I went to work for him. I spent countless hours, Anderson, convincing my supporters who felt equally aggrieved that they had to support Barack Obama. I was still arguing with big rooms of supporters at the Denver convention. I didn't get that same, you know, re respect and reciprocity from Senator Sanders or from his supporters. They're still, you know, incredibly divisive. He and I'm interested you, in what he can do to help elect Democrats. He's not a Democrat. He, he makes that clear. She must have not gotten the memo that that's not how politics works. That's not how any of this works. You are the one who's supposed to win us over and after you rigged the primaries and spit in the faces of every single progressive that supported bernie sanders he still did everything he possibly could to get you to win but you still lost and that was your fault your job was to win us over in fact when rachel maddow gave you the chance to reach out to bernie sanders supporters this is what you said i am winning I am winning. What a great way to win us over, right? I mean, she is basically implying there with that short clip that we have no choice but to support her. Otherwise, we're going to get a monster like Donald Trump 
that she propped up with her Pied Piper strategy. That's basically what she's saying here. Uh, I'm winning. You have no choice but to support me. That's what she said. And yet, according to Hillary Clinton, we're the ones that are being divisive because we're angry that she rigged the primary against the candidate that ultimately would have defeated Donald Trump. But we're divisive. Really, Hillary? We're the ones that are divisive? But I mean, she's not done here yet attacking Bernie Sanders and trying to smear his supporters because she did it yet again. Why did you go there, reopening a barely healed wound in your own party? Frankly, you know, one that's uh, stepped on your own headlines. Oh, I don't, I don't agree with that. I wanted to tell what happened, and the primary was part of what happened. Um, I won a landslide victory in the primary. Okay, I've got to stop it right here. This is bullshit. It wasn't a landslide, and someone with no name recognition almost defeated you in a rigged primary, but continue. I know what it's like to win, and I know what it's like to lose, and when I lost to Barack Obama, I immediately turned around, I endorsed him, I worked for him, I convinced my supporters to vote for him. I didn't get the same uh, respect from my primary opponent. And a lot of his supporters continue to harass and you know, really uh, go after my supporters all the time. And that feeds in, I think, to the whole sexism and misogyny uh, part of this campaign. Um, I had large groups of supporters who had to be private because if they lifted their head up online, if they were, you know, responding on a YouTube comment chain or on Twitter to something, they were just attacked, and the attacks were so sexist about, well, you're supporting a woman because you're a woman, and it just never really you're called, got you're, to the These facts. are the Bernie bros, so Well, called, yes, right? and they're still out there, and they're, and, and I also make the point, look, why I give them but, Why give them material? Why not let them well, concentrate on the Trump administration? Well, I'm concentrating on the Trump administration, and I am proud to be a Democrat. I've been a Democrat for decades. I have supported Democrats. I've worked for Democrats. Bernie's not a Democrat. And, and that's not a slam. That's what he says himself. And I think a lot of what uh, he churned up in the primary campaign was very uh, hurtful in the general election against me. And I see him doing the same thing. I see him, you know, with his supporters. He doesn't disown the things they say about, you know, some of my favorite Democrats, people like Kamala Harris, who is out there speaking up and speaking out, and she's being attacked from the left. Enough. You know, if you don't want to support Democrats, then go somewhere else. But if you are willing to work with us, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to be pushing and pulling to try to get to the right solutions. I've been for universal health care coverage my entire adult life. I've worked to achieve it. And we got closer than we ever had with the Affordable Care Act. I was defending it. He wanted to start over. We were at 90% coverage. I thought that was significant. So I'm not going to uh, step back from telling my truth, what I believe happened, and other people can, you know, write their own books and make their own comments. She cannot stop lying. She cannot stop lying. First of all, the Affordable Care Act was not single-payer. It was a Republican health care plan, hence why we're all 
not happy about it. Hence why it's not working, because Republican ideas don't work. Second of all, she references the attacks that progressives are launching against Kamala Harris, when really all we're asking is how we can trust her and why we should trust her when she is courting millionaire donors that supported Hillary Clinton, that bought off Hillary Clinton. But that's an attack, according to Hillary Clinton, because we said the same thing about her. How can we trust that you're going to look out for us if you're raising millions upon millions of dollars from Wall Street? And to her, that's an attack. When really, that's just a legitimate criticism. And she states here, we're attacking her supporters because we said that they were only supporting Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. Now, remind me again what her slogan was. Oh, that's right. It was, I'm with her. You wanted to make this about gender, Hillary Clinton, so that way when valid criticisms inevitably came up about you, you could just chalk it up to sexism and say that we're misogynistic, and that's why we are uh, questioning you and whether or not you would represent us. That's what this is about. You wanted to make this about your gender, Hillary Clinton. You're the one who wanted to do that. And she pretends like her antagonistic supporters were the victims of harassment by Bernie bros when a quantitative analysis revealed that Bernie supporters were some of the least aggressive online. Hillary supporters were actually the second most aggressive, with Trump coming in first. So Democrats like you and your friend Debbie Wasserman Schultz pretend like we were aggressive and were throwing chairs at conventions because you wanted to demonize us because you had no way to respond to the legitimate criticisms that we brought up about you. Now, Bernie Sanders took the time to respond to all of Hillary Clinton's nonsense in what I think is a really powerful way. I was arguing with my supporters at the Denver convention in 2008 about why they had to quit complaining that I didn't win and get out and support Barack Obama. And I didn't get that respect from him and his supporters. As you know, you've probably seen at least some excerpts of the book. I don't know if you've uh, fully read it yet, but this is a consistent theme. She believes you didn't work hard enough to bring your supporters to the fold the way she did in 08, which is what she's pointing there. And if anything, your supporters uh, may have undermined her candidacy in the general election. Do you accept that criticism? Wow. No, I really don't. And I, I look, Chuck, right now we're focusing on health care. We're focusing on the doctor issue. We're focusing on infrastructure, high cost of prescription drugs. I don't think it's useful to go backwards. I think we've got to go forwards. But let me just say this. I worked as hard as I could. After endorsing Hillary Clinton, I went all over this country. And I would remind people, you know, people say, well, not everybody who voted for Bernie ended up voting for Hillary. No kidding. That's what happens in politics. If my memory is correct, in 2008, something like 24% of the people who voted for Hillary Clinton in the primaries ended up voting for John McCain. That's the nature of politics. Most people, you know, are not rigidly Democrats or Republicans. They vote where they want. I worked as hard as I could. Uh, to see that Hillary Clinton uh, was would be elected president. So everything that Bernie Sanders said right there is 100% true. And in continuing to blame everyone else for her mistakes, Hillary Clinton isn't actually wanting to figure out exactly, as she put it, what happened. And what could I have done differently or what could have happened that didn't happen? She doesn't care about that. Hillary Clinton has an agenda. Her agenda is to break down Bernie Sanders and tear down everything that he's doing. And people don't necessarily think that this is the case because in a recent interview, she said that she's done being a politician. Is your political career over? Yes, as, a, as an active politician, it's over. You will never be a candidate no, I'm, for office. I, I am done with being a candidate, but I am not done with politics because I literally believe 
that our country's future is at stake. So I'm relieved that she's done being a politician, but that last line she said there was really important. She's not done with politics. And I think that honestly, as someone who is working from behind the scenes, she could do more damage to the progressive movement than if she were actually just running, if she were a politician, because as progressives, we could choose not to vote for her, but as someone who has insider influence on the Democratic Party, I mean, she could do a lot more. And she's making it clear that she is going to ensure that Bernie Sanders' influence on the Democratic Party is diminished because, as this Politico article puts it, she doesn't want him getting the keys to the Democratic Party. And the problem is that they're actually listening to her because, as you might have heard recently, California is actually trying to move up their 2020 primary on the schedule in order to give an establishment candidate like Kamala Harris, who's from the state of California, an advantage over Bernie Sanders, who most likely will be running. So in other words, they're literally already planning to try to rig the primary again. And it's not just that she's trying to hurt Bernie Sanders and stop him from taking any sort of power in the Democratic Party. She's not just trying to hurt him electorally, but she's also trying to do what she can to undermine his policy goals, including criticizing his Medicare for All bill, telling Ezra Klein of Vox, quote, as you might remember during the campaign, he introduced a single payer bill every year he was in Congress. And when somebody finally read it, he couldn't explain it and couldn't really tell people how much it was going to cost. So Hillary Clinton might not be running again, but she still holds an incredible amount of sway within the Democratic Party. And really, you know, what she's doing with her influence is becoming an obstacle to progress. Because in trying to tear down Bernie Sanders when he's fighting for policies that we want him to fight for, that's that's really devastating. And look, I, I mentioned before how I hate talking about Hillary Clinton. It feels like we're just stuck in this time loop where every day we wake up, it's the 2016 Democratic primaries where we are forced to come out and debunk all of her arbitrary smears and attacks on Bernie Sanders and his supporters. Like, it feels like she's personally impugning my character, at least. I know that a lot of you feel the same way, too. So if Hillary Clinton really does care about the country, which is why she's staying in politics, and she's not just promoting this book tour for narcissistic reasons, then she should allow Bernie Sanders to get the keys to the Democratic Party because his policies are what ultimately will defeat right-wing pseudo-populism in Donald Trump. But she doesn't care. This is about influence. This is about power. It's never been about helping the country for Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, what she's saying... I hate that I even have to still talk about Hillary Clinton, but so long as she's going to espouse this misinformation and attack Bernie Sanders when he is fighting for one of the most important battles in American history, Medicare for all, we have to come out and defend Bernie Sanders from her attacks because it's wrong. So Hillary Clinton is really hurting the party um, and she's hurting all of us, you know, by proxy of hurting the Democratic Party. So it's, she's, she's just so selfish and she surrounds herself by yes men and yes women and Everything that she does, even if it's bad, they just reinforce all of her ideas as good ideas. When she really, she, she has no interest in talking with ordinary Americans and figuring out what we want and what we care about. She doesn't care. She only cares about herself and her power, which is why even if she's not going to be running for political office, she's still staying involved with Democratic Party politics. She wants a say. And look, she let, let's be honest here, not to be too cynical, but she raised a lot of money in 2016 and she wants to make sure that she delivers to all of her donors in one way or another. So by staying in the Democratic Party and making sure that they remain corporatist, that's one way that she can still try to deliver to her corporate donors by proxy of the Democratic Party. So that's also what this is about. 
So Hillary Clinton is an incredibly divisive figure. As she says Bernie and his supporters are divisive, she's divisive. And worse is that she's really hurting the country. So she she has to stop. I'm not saying that she doesn't have the right to speak, but in attacking Bernie Sanders, she she doesn't care. You know, she doesn't care about this country. She only cares about herself. And it's so disheartening and just downright disgusting. So while I was gone last week, something happened that struck the perfect balance between magically hilarious and nauseating. <laughs> because as you all know, late at night, one day, uh, Ted Cruz decided to uh, like a specific tweet on um, Twitter that some of us might consider hardcore pornography. Now, of course, even though I'm super late to the party on this, there's no way I would miss this because this is probably one of my favorite stories of the year. Now, the minute that I learned about this, I actually put up a poll on Twitter asking my followers what his likely excuse would be. And with 41% of the vote, people thought that he would claim his account was hacked. 34% thought that he would just own up to it. And only 25% thought that he would probably blame a staffer. So let's go ahead and find out who he decided to blame. Oh, look, it was, uh, we had a staffer who accidentally hit the wrong button. And, and it was a screw up. I, I will say Twitter went crazy with it. It became trending. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as we found out about it, we pulled it down. And, and uh, it's generated a lot of amusement. It, it has, has prompted a lot of jokes. I, I, I understand that. I, I saw one person joking online. That, that if only this had happened during the presidential, Cruz might be in the White House right now. Have you identified the staffer? You know who it is? We have looked into it. Yes, we, we have identified it. We pulled it down. It was, it was an honest mistake. Was it, was not, it, it wasn't malicious. It wasn't deliberate. It, it was a screw-up. Is the staffer being punished? Uh, we, ha we have talked with the staffer. It's not going to happen again. It, 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 it was a screw-up. Can you tell me the staffer's name? I, I'm not going to out, out the fellow. I mean, this, we're, we have dealt with it internally, but I'm not going to throw someone under the bus. Can you definitively say that it wasn't you? It was not me, and it's not going to happen again. This staff, this was a screw-up. Do you appreciate the irony that you once defended a Texas law banning sales of sex toys? No, actually, actually, I, I mean, that, that's a good example, Dana, of act, where the media runs with things that are just totally false. What's what's false about that? So what is false about that? So I've read on online. Mm -hmm. You know, Cruz supports banning sex toys. No, no, no. But that's complete the sales. nonsense. I, I just, I reread the brief this morning. So. The sale of it. All right. I spent five and a half years as the Solicitor General of mm -hmm. Texas. I worked for the Attorney General. The Attorney General's law job mm -hmm. is to defend the laws passed by the Texas legislature. I get it, yep. One of those laws was a law restricting the sale of sex toys. Mm -hmm. It was a stupid law. Listen, I am one of the most libertarian members of the Senate. I think it's idiotic. Uh, but it, it's an opportunity for knuckleheads in the media to claim, oh, isn't this ironic yeah. that, that Cruz wants to ban these okay, things? Okay, I no, can't I believe I'm going to say... People okay. ought to be able to do I what they want I can't believe I'm going to ask you this, but so you're officially saying Ted Cruz is okay with people buying sex toys? I, I am saying that consenting adults should be able to do whatever they want in their bedrooms. And, and uh, you know, the media and the left seem obsessed with sex. I, let people do what they want. Let's talk about tax reform. <laughs> I love the transition at the end there, just talking about pornography and masturbation, then shifts to tax reform like that. I thought it was great. Um, this is what he says. He states, 
you know, it, there was no malicious intent there. It was a staffer that just, you know, hit the wrong button. Sure, Ted. Sure, Dan. <laughs> Would that staffer happen to be named Ted Cruz? Because, I mean... Technically would still be true, right? Because I mean you are part of your own staff, right? So you're not lying if you say a staffer hit the wrong button <laughs> Was that staff for you Ted? <laughs> Look if you've watched this program for a really long time, you know what my response is already going to be to Ted Cruz here Cue the song Why the fuck you lying? Why, Why you always lying? Why? Oh my god Stop fucking lying Always lying to me. Why? You lying so much. Why? You making it hard for me. Yeah. Okay, so as American citizens, we deserve to know the real story here. And I'm going to give you the real story as to, you know, the way I think this evening unfolded. Ted Cruz um, didn't realize that he wasn't still signed onto his throwaway Twitter account that he uses to like porn tweets. Um, and he decided to um, maybe go through and see what was on the internet in terms of pornography. And he decided to like this one to save it for later so he could come back to it and um, beat his meat to it. That's that's exactly what happened. And towards the end, we all know that, you know, he, he enjoyed this porn so much that when he finished, he made this specific face. You're welcome for that image. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Now, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't share my favorite memes with you that, you know, came about as a direct result of this. Look, I laughed so hard that my stomach was literally hurting. Like, I, I can't, I had tears streaming down my face as I was, you know, reading Twitter and seeing some of these memes. So, probably my favorite here in an extremely Ted Cruz voice. Time for a little porn-a-rooney! <laughs> That's that's the best that it gets people when it comes to my Ted Cruz impression. Another one here, when the gerbil in your butt sneezes. This one, I, I don't know how long I laughed at this at this meme here. It's so long. Um, another one, I'm gonna beat my dick like a drum. <laughs> and this one even has a Verit authentication code too, so you know it's legit. And finally, from my buddy Ben Dixon here, he states, "It's okay, Ted Cruz. I too have staffers who accidentally like porn tweets on my Twitter account late at night when they're off work." <laughs> So look, um, nobody believes you, Ted Cruz. We all know that that was you that liked that particular tweet. It wasn't like, you know, uh, this was even on his Senate account because he has two Twitter accounts, right? One for, you know, him being a senator and just this personal Twitter account. This was his personal Twitter account. And it was late at night, as Ben Dixon stated here. So we know that it was you. You wanted to jerk off to this particular porn um, after railing against pornography and saying that the sale of sex toys should be banned in the state of Texas, saying that we don't have the right to masturbate. Well, apparently, um, you like to do that as well. So look, I don't, I don't, I'll, this goes without saying, I don't care that Ted Cruz looks at porn. What I really care about is the hypocrisy. And now that he is, ex is exposed as a gigantic hypocrite, of course, I'm going to take the opportunity here to make fun of him. Because um, he's a gigantic creep, and that's never going to change. So, Ted, I'm sorry. We don't believe you. Let's play that song one more time. Oh, my God. Stop fucking lying. Well, that is all that I've got on today's show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, as usual, I've got to give a special shout-out to all of our Patreon contributors and our PayPal contributors because you guys 
really, really helped this show. Um, and, and I just, I can't express just how grateful I am to all of you for your kindness. And thank you all so much for putting up with my absence last week. As you all know, I did get married. So I'm incredibly excited to, you know, be part of the married life. And I'm appreciative that you guys were, for the most part, what seemed to be pretty understanding. I think newcomers to the channel probably thought that I just only have like one shirt because you saw me, you know, <laughs> from the same episode, you know, day after day. But, you know, I, I record all episodes, you know, within an hour or two. And they are available almost immediately for all of our Patreon patrons and members. So if you don't want to wait, you can do that way. But, you know, I'm never going to press you to do that. So, look, thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I really, really hope you enjoyed the episode. I certainly enjoyed talking about everything that I did. Most of it, anyways. Um, but, yeah, uh, thank you all so much. Have a great day.